And another industry, our battered down but not yet broken restaurant industry, uh, given an adjustment to operations yesterday, parties now have a capacity limit of six per table. And to speak on that and other concerns related to the business, we are now joined by Brad McLeod, owner and managing partner of Sea Lovers Fish and Chips. Hi, Brad. Hi, how's it going? Doing all right. Uh, thank you for doing this. Um, first of all, Brad, just want to get your reaction to the restrictions and the announcement you heard yesterday. Um, well, we all knew it was coming. There was going to be some restrictions put in place. And we were happy to see that Dr. Bonnie uh, acknowledged that restaurants have been doing a good job uh, following all the guidelines and by putting in the restrictions of just six people to a limit per group uh, was something that we can handle. Uh, and that with what's going on. But she obviously uh, has confidence in what the industry has been doing by not implementing uh, more restrictions mm. like we've seen in other jurisdictions in the country. Well, I think you, you raise a really good point. A lot of people have made the, uh, made the suggestion, like restaurants are regularly enforcing the vaccine card. Uh, at first, it was uh, sometimes a visual check. But of course, according to the most recent restrictions as of last week, you have to now scan those uh, Q- QR codes, which I think is a big step in, in this entire process. But Brad, one thing I'm wondering, throughout this entire pandemic, has there ever been a COVID-19 case linked to one of your locations at Sea Lovers? Like, has there ever been any risk associated there? No, we we have had none of my knowledge that any of our locations have had any cases linked to them uh, in regards to customers with COVID. Uh, and that, and we follow all the protocols we have since day one. Um, and we've done a lot of staff training with the protocols as they change and, and so on. And, and our belief is, like I believe Dr. Bonnie believes, restaurants are a safe place for people to go, uh, follow the restrictions, but it's a safe place to go and, and meet up and have a meal and, and socialize with people that you feel confident with in your, in your group. And uh, I think it's been shown throughout COVID that restaurants are safe. And so for Brad, uh, the new restrictions of how many people can sit at the, the table now at six, um, how does that hit you? It does. It, this time of year, it, it affects us because usually it's bigger groups that want to come out and get together family members that haven't seen each other and stuff like that. So it, it will impact us to a degree. Um, but a lot of people have been through this in the last 22 months and understand where those restrictions come from. So I think we'll, we'll handle through that fine. Brad, you've been in this business for a long time, and ultimately the pandemic only makes up a small chunk of the overall time you've been in the biz. If you take a step back, what have you learned about running a business during this unprecedented time? Uh, be ready to change at any moment. <laughs> Things change and be ready to react. Um, our staff has been unbelievable because I still go back. Uh, people talk about business owners. The biggest pressure is on our staff. Their job changes daily, rules, how they've been tra- trained and so on changes all the time. So mine goes out to the staff at how hard they've worked to accommodate all these changes all the time so they can continue to uh, take care of our customers. Yeah, your industry's definitely had to be very nimble, very fast reacting. If someone approached you today and said, hey, I want to open a restaurant in Metro Vancouver, in this day and age, what would you tell them? Uh, I would still say it's a, it's a good industry. Vancouver and the restaurant industry is, is known, and we're going to get through this. I mean, I don't, I would watch what type of restaurant you're going to open right now and stuff like that. But I believe we're through the worst of the pandemic and that, and I still think it's an industry that I'd want to be in my, our family's involved in the industry. My son's involved in the industry and uh, he'll be moving forward with it and that. So no, I'm not, I'm not saying to stay out of the industry by any means, but uh, 
I definitely look at what your game plan and business plan was if you're going to go into it. Uh, Brad, uh, do you know of other businesses? Because it sounds like Sea Lovers, there's a, a feeling of optimism listening to you right now. But I'm sure you know other restaurant owners, uh, restaurateurs who might be looking at some of these uh, six-party limits and thinking, this is a big, big challenge for us. And, and it could result in potential layoffs of staff members. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Fine dining restaurants, uh, it, it's not a part I would want to be in because they're, they're, they get hurt the worst when these uh, rules kick in and so on and so forth. We do a high percentage of our volume as takeout, so that, that doesn't get affected as bad, and we can parlay into higher takeout sales, but full-blown fine dining restaurants and sit-down restaurants, it, it makes it very tough for them. Does it make sense to you, like some of the restrictions that did come down quite recently, whether it was yesterday or last week, like people have made the point, certain industries, certain sectors are closed, but others remain open. And it's a little puzzling. And I'll give you one example, like malls, shopping malls. Of course, it's the holiday season, very busy right now. Why are malls still allowed to be open and technically considered safe? But now you have to put a size limit on restaurants which are, again, businesses that are regularly checking people for vaccine cards? I don't know. I find that it's what, like, go buy a Costco. I drove by yesterday and I went, there doesn't seem to be a pandemic in that parking lot. And it, it is puzzling. It is puzzling to us at, at what what goes in place, at how retail, there seems to be no restriction at retail or anything like that, capacity or anything like that. And And here we are looking at it and gyms are closed down nightclubs are closed down altogether and and that but retail doesn't seem to be getting hit with anything so it is puzzling times. what does it mean for some of your longtime regular customers to know that sea lovers is still going to be there for the holiday season yes tables are a little bit smaller for some of those bigger families but at least they're there because you know when i think of fish and chips i think of family gatherings uh, it's just kind of an experience that i've had personally so i'm sure it means a lot to those yeah, it does. And we, we have a lot of regular customers and, and they know we're always going to be there. We follow the rules, but if we're allowed to be open, we're always open. And we have been through the entire pandemic and we've always been open for takeout as well. And people know that if they want to do a large group uh, or just a family get together at home, we're open for takeout so they can come on in and get a takeout order. All right, Brad, I haven't had much of a breakfast this morning. So uh, this whole conversation started to make me a little hungry. But with that said, really appreciate you giving us some time here and happy holidays uh, to you and your family. Happy holidays. Thanks for having me. Just this month in December, we're delivering about 35 million rapid tests to provinces and territories. And we've got tens and tens of millions uh, more rapid tests arriving in the coming weeks uh, into the new year. Uh, so provinces and territories uh, will have the supplies necessary to get them into people's hands. That is the Prime Minister Justin Trudeau speaking earlier this morning in a, a virtual press conference, but talking about how tens of millions of rapid tests are on the way, uh, not just for Ontario and Quebec, but all over the country. And I think that's welcome news for a lot of concerned British Columbians. In fact, uh, a lot of people saying, oh, we should have had these in our hands a long, long time ago. Uh, it's the Joel Bennett Show. Uh, welcome, uh, John Jang and Raji Sohal filling in for you. Uh, we are now joined by Dr. Brian Conway, Medical Director and Infectious Diseases Specialist at the Vancouver Infectious Disease Centre. Dr. Conway, first of all, happy holidays and thanks for joining us. Oh, do we have you, Dr. Conway? Hello? 
All right. Uh, we're going to try and get Dr. Conway back here on the phones. Uh, we do have uh, sometimes a couple of technical glitches, nothing to worry about there. But, you know, Raju, when you hear that clip from the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, I think you also probably might have missed it, but you could hear a loud sigh of relief from British Columbians who are thinking, oh, Thank Get us goodness. those rapid tests. Yeah, that's yeah, all I want sure. for Christmas, maybe, you know. Well, I've been hearing about people who've been getting them sent from other provinces, sent from the states, sent from overseas. Mm-hmm. So people here are pretty desperate for them. I'm really curious to see uh, what Dr. Conway will say about the rapid tests you got and it. Uh, yeah. their efficacy. Uh, speaking of Dr. Conway, he is back with us now. Sorry about that, Dr. Conway. Are you there? I am. Calls sometimes drop and... Uh, Glad we were able to uh, get back together here. There you go. Our technical producer uh, fastidiously working to get that done very quickly. But Dr. Conway, um, I'm not sure if you heard it, but uh, Justin Trudeau, the prime minister, did say tens of millions more rapid tests are on the way, uh, should be in Canadians' hands uh, sometime early 2022. Uh, So first question for you, sir, are you personally satisfied or are you concerned with BC's rollout of both the rapid tests and the booster shots? Well, I think with respect to the rapid tests, we have not really embraced their use in the general population. We have preferred to use them in a targeted way. And this is very different from what is being done currently in eastern Canada. So hopefully with more tests around, we will be able to find a use for them in different settings than what Dr. Henry presented yesterday. And these different settings have really proven to be quite useful in dealing with the pandemic in the rest of Canada. So hopefully, uh, let's learn from our colleagues to the east. Okay, Dr. Conway, rapid tests, are they a panacea? Because we keep hearing how everyone eventually is going to get COVID-19. And we know, and this may change, but currently we're hearing that symptoms for the Omicron variant tend to be so mild sometimes that they go unnoticed. So what I wonder is how long will rapid testing even need to remain in the toolkit of things that we need? Oh, I think it will need to remain in that toolkit for the foreseeable future. The issue with Omicron is that it is so easily transmissible. The incubation period is down to three days on average. The reproductive rate of the Omicron-driven pandemic is two, which means that for each case, there are two cases that are then transmitted on an onward basis. So it becomes all the more important to identify cases quickly, identify and interrupt transmission networks, and rapid tests can have great usefulness in that regard. They are a red light, as Dr. Henry said, not a green light, which means that if it is positive, it indicates a case. If it is negative, it still means that you have to adhere to all the public health regulations that are in place. But their usefulness in identifying cases more quickly is is certainly something that we should consider here in British Columbia. Dr. Conway, moving then to the issue of booster shots, I want to see what you have to think about that, because not only are rapid tests maybe, as you say, not fully embraced by British Columbians, but boosters not fully available for British Columbians when you look at the timeline that's available for people living in Ontario. So uh, just your reaction to the current window of six to eight months after getting your second dose. Well, I think that was designed at a time when we had a virus that was less transmissible and that didn't evade the immune response that was generated from the first two shots. And because of those two things, it has led to a reconsideration of booster shot programs basically around the world, making the interval between the second and third doses shorter so that we can benefit from the booster at a time when protection against Omicron has has waned more quickly than we had predicted. So that's why we want to give the boosters 
sooner. I welcome the news that everyone will be boosted by the end of March, which is what Minister Dix said yesterday. But I'm also a little bit concerned that many of the vaccine centers seem to be slowing down or even closing over the holidays. And this is really, to my mind, not the right time to be slowing down. Let's at least keep up the pace. Let's consider boosting some people sooner than we had wanted to in the original design of the plan. And let's protect the population in a way that that makes sense and considers the current science. Okay. Dr. Conway, here's a very pointed question. Young, healthy people are saying, some of them are saying that they want to get Omicron now, get it over with because they're anticipating milder symptoms and they hope that it will increase antibodies in their body before the next variant develops. Is there any scientific background to that? Absolutely not. In terms of it causing more mild disease, data were presented from South Africa just this morning that hospitalization rates are lower with Omicron than with previous variants, but they aren't zero. They're 80% lower. So if you have four or five times as many cases, that will balance out the number of hospitalizations in terms of the disease being milder. So counting on mild disease is really uh, like, uh, like flipping a coin. It isn't, it isn't a good thing. Now, in terms of the immunity that's being developed as a result of Omicron, this comes from information that suggests that vaccinated people and that who are then subsequently infected seem to have some sort of super immunity. That's a theoretical concept that's been demonstrated in a few individuals and certainly not one on which we should count to develop public health policy. And Dr. Conway, before we let you go, just 30 seconds here, but you would be in favor of opening more vaccination sites because uh, a lot of them had closed over the past number of months and maybe also opening more testing sites around uh, the province. Well, uh, it, you can't have people stand in line for four hours for a test. This will discourage testing. People who should be tested will look at the line and walk away. We need to do this better. And in terms of vaccine centers, slowing down from the holidays is sending the wrong message to the population of British Columbia. We're asking you to make more sacrifices, to keep the gatherings smaller, to not go to the gym. Oh, and by the way, we can't vaccinate you for the next week because we're taking time off. This is this is not a good message to send. And let's see if we can reconsider it. Dr. Conway, thank you so much for giving us some time here today and happy holidays. Happy holidays to you and all the listeners. All right, welcome back to the Jill Bennett Show. John Jang, Raji Sohal filling in for Jill. Uh, she will technically be back next week, but she'll then be filling in for uh, Mornings with Simi. That's so right. musical chairs of yeah. all these hosts and voices will continue. But I think by early 2022, like the first week of January, things should be back on track, I think. Probably. All right. I guess we'll find out. Could just be you and me forever. <laughs> I wouldn't mind that. This has been really fun. I, I agree. I'm looking yeah. forward to to the rest of our show today, but also we're going to be on together tomorrow, which is great. You got it. And uh, there you go. Uh, now, we have so much more still coming up on the show. But for now, I uh, want to remind you that over the past year, and really since the beginning of the pandemic... One of the more alarming stories to follow is the number of random assaults that are happening, not just throughout the city of Vancouver, but across the region. And according to one report from Global News uh, dated October 20th of this year, uh, Vancouver police are saying that the city is averaging four random assaults per day. We bring this up now because we want to share with you a story and an incident that happened in West Vancouver, uh, where a senior, an elderly person, was assaulted. West Vancouver police now asking the public for help because we do have some details on what the suspect looked like. So to break that down, we are now joined by West Vancouver Police Spokesperson, Constable Kevin Goodmurphy. Constable Goodmurphy, thank you for joining us today. 
You bet. Thanks for having me. Uh, can you explain to us exactly the incident itself? Uh, what happened, what transpired, and uh, when and where this all took place? Yeah, you bet. So this happened, uh, I guess, in the early morning of Saturday, December the 18th, um, when our 80-year-old uh, male victim was was walking alone in the Park Rural area. Uh, he was out for a stroll, it's my understanding, just uh, in the Park Rural South area near the Eddie Bauer store, um, when he noticed uh, a, a man walking towards him. Um, as he as he got close to the man, he, he gave a friendly uh, good morning to this fellow, um, and, and the man then turned around. It's my understanding that he ended up walking next to our victim for, for a, a few seconds, which was a bit strange, and then turned and uh, pushed our victim to the ground and walked away. Luckily, our victim didn't suffer any serious injuries, um, in my understanding, and, and, and was sore, but um, did not end up having to go to hospital. We are now looking to identify the suspect. This is obviously very concerning to us. We have some CCTV footage uh, some images of our suspect from the area, and we're hoping to uh, identify this person. Is is that kind of behavior very concerning? Uh, I'm usually when you think of a random assault, this person just happens to come up to you, maybe strike you, and then off they go. But the fact that this person walked alongside the victim for a little bit, maybe trying to get a sense of uh, how physically fit is the victim, are they walking alone, are they meeting up with someone, that tells me like this is predatory behavior. Yeah, we we just don't know. I mean, until we get more information and really that would would come from you know any evidence we can gather in this case you know like i said cctv footage to just see exactly what happened um and and frankly speaking to interviewing the uh the suspect if if they're willing to talk to us um to find out potentially a a motive for this it's my understanding that they, they didn't know each other they were they were complete strangers and and yes i mean to your point it is concerning, um, you know, assaults of any kind are concerning in West Vancouver, but definitely when there is a, uh, this aspect of sort of an unprovoked stranger assault, it is, it is concerning. Constable, this happened outside of a, a popular mall at 7.30 in the morning. Seems a reasonable place for a person to be out and about and not feel like they're endangering their own safety. We're not talking right about an, an encounter with someone in the middle of the park at midnight. So what what are people supposed to do to protect themselves in, in a case like this? Yeah, it's a great, great question. And, you know, West Vancouver and specifically the mall area, it's it's a very safe place to walk. Um, it's not uncommon to see people out for their morning walks at 7.30. Uh, I've seen people out for their walks at 2 in the morning on the seawall when I've been working patrol night shifts. Sure, yeah. Um, which is not uncommon. And and and, and we're proud of that, that, that we are able to, you know, um, keep crime rates low and, and create a, a sense of safety for our community members. Um, you know, in this case... I actually think our victim did what what they should have done, and that's, you know, acknowledging this other person, uh, making eye contact, you know, um, saying good morning, um, letting them know that they that they see them. Um, and unfortunately, um, this went the way it did, um, and, and our victim could not have seen that coming. So, you know, it, again, concerning, um, it's a very safe area, um, and, and people, I think it's just about being aware of your surroundings. In this case, you know, it, it didn't really make a difference, unfortunately. Constable, why are these stranger attacks happening? We're hearing about them too often now. We hear about these men who, during the pandemic, are following complete strangers, attacking them in some cases. Some of it, uh, people have managed to pull their phones out and document document it. Why is there a rise in that behavior? And does does the pandemic have anything to do with it? You know, and that's the million dollar question here, and that's what investigators are trying to really figure out. You know, we we 
we do our best to try to, you know, link up any kind of commonalities or, or, or MOs between these incidents. Um, is it the same person? Are there pe- pe- other people related? Um, you know, I'm aware, too, of, of incidents happening in other jurisdictions in Metro Vancouver and, and the numbers that you mentioned that are sort of, um, you know, higher than, than ever, potentially. Um, in West Vancouver, I can't say that is the case for us. There are three, um, to my knowledge, um, that were carded as unprovoked stranger assaults in West Vancouver in 2021. This is uh, the third that I know of. Um, there are no connections that, that we can speak to. I mean, to answer your question, why is it happening? We don't know. Um, you know, there, there's often uh, mental illness plays a role in this. Um, um, not always the case, but that is sometimes the case. And, and as far as it's related to the pandemic, I mean, um, it's it's likely to think that there is some some aspect that, that would be, you know, provoking this, given the, the amount of stress that people are under. But, you know, I just can't say if that's the case here or not. And, and what do we know about the person that uh, West Vancouver police are, are looking for right now? If there is surveillance footage, I assume there's a photo and, and an idea of what this person looks like, if you could share that for us. Yeah, you bet. So our suspect in this case is described as uh, as a, a male, uh, approximately six feet, six foot one inches tall. He's got a slim build. Um, he was wearing a, a black jacket with a very distinctive um, orange hood and sort of an orange pattern that came down over the shoulders, uh, black pants and white running shoes. So, you know, it's really that orange and black combination of the jacket that we're hoping somebody might have noticed around the, the, the time um, perhaps spoke with him or have, have more information that may help us to identify him. So um, that's who we're looking for. We fanned it out amongst our own, you know, local agencies, police officers, and hopefully someone will be able to identify who this person is. And and, good, and again, just a reminder, the uh, the victim doing okay? I understand they have a bit of a sore hip, but otherwise doing okay and in good spirits? Yeah, that is my understanding, yes. All right. That's uh, really good news. Uh, well, Constable, thank you for giving us a, a little explanation of exactly what happened. And I'm sure if anyone listening has any idea on what the suspect is all about or who it is, uh, how can they uh, reach out and maybe provide a little bit of information? Yeah, so there's two ways. They can contact contact us uh, through our non-emergency phone number, 604-925-7300. Um, if they wish to remain anonymous, they can go through Crime Stoppers. Uh, through solvecrime.ca, or they can contact Crime Stoppers through their telephone number, which is on the same website. Uh, Constable, thank you for giving us some time. For your sake, I hope uh, you and your uh, colleagues have a very boring holiday season, but thank you for doing this. Thank you so much. Appreciate the time. All right, welcome back to the Jill Bennett Show. John Jang, Raji Sohal filling in. Uh, I suppose I missed the memo. Are we playing nonstop Christmas music for the rest of the show? Is that? I hope so, because Tim, yeah? our producer, has excellent taste in music, so uh, I'm feeling this. Tim sure. usually is a, a golden goose when it comes to the musical selections, but Good I gotta. Stuff. I'm not into the the Christmas tunes just yet. Oh, my friend, Christmas is so close, I can smell it. So you better get into Christmas the Christmas tunes. What does Christmas smell tunes. like? It smells like those awesome tunes like mistletoe <laughs> and turkey and cinnamon and bring it all on and pour okay. it all over me. I don't want to hear any music unless it's Christmas music. <laughs> See, the reason why this is important is because it fits into the narrative of this next conversation because I'm not going to have a big family gathering. Uh, the Jangs are all split up. You know, my sister's in Korea. My folks are in Alberta. I'm here in Vancouver. Like, we're just everywhere. And so unlike me, you will have a family gathering. You have a family. Uh, and so I, I think that's the difference is that my Christmas is going to smell like 
just my house. Like that's that's <laughs> yeah. pretty much it. Not that it smells awful, <laughs> but your Christmas will smell differently. So maybe that's why we're in two different uh, festive moods, one in, one out. But to help explain how you can still enjoy family gatherings without doing it in person using the power of technology, it's our good friend Andy Barrard, technology and digital lifestyle expert at HandyAndyMedia.com, also a weekly contributor for The Shift with Shane Hewitt. Andy, hello. How are you? Hi, John. Hi, Raji. Hello. Uh, Andy, first question. Um, what are your festive spirits like right now? Are you in or out of like the Christmas thing, the, the music, the spirit, all of it? Well, you know, my family was going to have a big Christmas uh, party this year, but then everything kind of changed uh, after yesterday. Mm-hmm. By the way, I listened to both of you yesterday after the press conference. I thought you guys did a great job. I know everybody was kind of in shock, but, mm. uh, you know, we kind of saw it coming. But if I... I John, you know me. I'm a glass half full type of person. You know, I'm always looking for the silver lining. And right. I'll tell you one thing. If I had a choice between the Spanish flu pandemic or the COVID <laughs> pandemic, I'm going with COVID all day because we have so much technology and we were able to transition yes. to working yes, from home and, yes. and staying connected with our loved ones. So it's not all that bad. And since we did it last year, we're also veterans at this. So I think we got this as long as we, um, you know, go in it with the right attitude. You're right. As long as we're embracing technology. Yeah, Andy, uh, I'm usually working from home, but uh, this week has seen me working in the studios with John Jang. And it's great being in person. But you know what? I was doing a totally fine job working from home. So I think the big thing for me was 2020. We all wholesale adopted technology, right? To stay in touch as a means for us to, to get together with people, do it virtually. So we're so curious to hear from you. What are the best apps for connecting with, let's say, for example, a bunch of people? What's the easiest way? What's the, what's the app out there that people should be using today? Well, it's going to shock a lot of people because it hurts me to say this, but I think the one number one app that everyone should be using, because there's the old saying, you got to fish where the fish are, and there's a lot of fish on Facebook. So what? You, you got to use, the, and I, it, it pains me to say this, but they have the, the right tools no. and the fact that we are already connected with our families on Facebook. Um, one of the best things we can do, and I, I was suggesting this last year, and I suggest it this year as well is to create a private Facebook group for your just your family. Because if you have that, you can then share photos and videos. But not only that, you have the administrator of that group has the ability to do live streaming from that Facebook group. So only the people in the group could actually see it on Facebook. And this is great if you can't have your grandparents over and they want to see the, the kids opening up the presents, you could actually stream that to the grandparents and to the old family members using Facebook groups. So as much as I am a critic for Facebook, uh, they do have the tools and the connections to allow us to stay connected during the holidays. So Andy, are you suggesting that we use Facebook as a way to stay in touch because people are already on Facebook? Is that the reason why? Because what about the private concerns? Well, no, it's really because everybody's on there. Um, One thing that we're seeing with Facebook is especially older people have really embraced it. So technology can be very, um, you know, daunting. If you ever seen, you know, somebody try to use Zoom for the first time, uh, you know what you're talking about. But for Facebook, they're very uh, accustomed to it. And the thing, the way that these Facebook private groups work is that content just comes on your Facebook feed. So if you have like a grandmother or grandfather who, who understands Facebook, maybe they have a tablet. Um, that's a great 
great way for them to see, you know, content coming from the different households, from the families, especially as the kids open up the presents, you can create short little video clips and quickly upload it to that group. And it makes it really easy for people to stay connected during the holidays. Uh, one of the things that you need to do as well when you're having a big gathering, whether it's virtual or in person, is to entertain Andy. And what that, that can be a number of things, movies, uh, music or video games. How exactly do you think is the best way and the easiest way for people to enjoy these things if they're not in the same room or even in the same building? Well, I think one of the big traditions that a lot of families have is watching uh, Christmas movies together. And unfortunately, we're not going to be able to do that because we can't be in person. But the technology companies have figured out a great solution. And one is this uh, browser extension called Teleparty. It used to be called Netflix Party Watch. Hmm. But they've actually opened this up to work with both Netflix, Disney, and HBO. And essentially what it does is it works with your browser. It's a little extension, but it synchronizes the movie plays for a bunch of people at the same time. And it also has a live chat option. So it is about as close as you can get to trying to you know, share the experience of watching holiday movies and chatting at the same time without having to you know, physically be in the same room. Andy, I love that idea because I think, again, Christmas movies are a staple. Like, I'm not in the festive spirit yet, but if somebody sits me down in front of a TV and we've got jingle bells or something like that on, I'll watch it a little bit. Sure, maybe that'll help me get into the spirit. But what about for the kids? <laughs> like, video games are still so important. Movies will only go so far. And one of the things I think even older family members might enjoy is something called Jackbox. And if you're familiar with it, can you maybe explain how Jackbox works? Because maybe families out there over the next couple of days and weeks might want to give it a try. Well, if I understand quickly, I haven't used Jackbox myself, but if I understand quickly, it, it, it integrates with other different types of platforms like Zoom. So you have that ability to kind of play virtual games. And virtual party games actually have exploded mm -hmm. uh, during the last year. You have the ability to play bingo. You know, you can go and get a bingo card generator. There's a website called MyFreeBingoCards.com. And you can then play bingo with people virtually. Of course, there's lots of trivia games. Pictionary is very popular mm. uh, online on virtually. But my favorite two have to be Monopoly because that's a holiday uh, tradition that I did with my family. And you can actually do that with the app, the Monopoly app. But my favorite one that spans for kids and adults, Mario Kart Tour. I don't know if you've played oh. it, John. <laughs> oh, yeah. But Mario Kart, it, it works for both the Apple App Store and for the Google Play Store. You can get seven-player multiplayer for free with all your friends, your family, your cousins, your nephews, your nieces. Uh, it is one of the funnest games. And so I don't know about Jackbox, but I'm definitely going to say Mario Kart Tour is probably one of the best games to play this holiday Okay, Andy, does that mean that people can, like for us, us who don't uh, play video games yet, I say yet because there's always a one day, uh, is there a way to play it online with your family and friends and also chat and see each other while you're playing at the same time? Well, this is the secret, Raji, is that a lot of us have multiple mobile devices. You know, typically you have a laptop, you have a smartphone, and maybe even a tablet. And one of the great things to do is if you can get these live streams, if you use something like Facebook again with their Facebook uh, rooms, so you can have these kind of uh, group video chats, and then you play the games on your mobile device at the same time. So you can hear people, you can see them on one device, and then you can play it on your other device. And if you can do that, and sometimes it depends on your internet connection, if you have that 
without the latency, but they're pretty good right now. And that's a great way to feel that you're physically there, but you're still doing it virtually, but you're just utilizing technology that you have and just using them all at the same time. So it takes a little bit of thinking, but we all have those party planners in the family. And so those are the people that we can really depend on to kind of create these party games and these you know festive activities that we can do virtually. I love it because if you have the tablet, then grandma, while she's smoking you in Mario Kart, you can see her <laughs> laughing and cackling. And that's really the meaning of a of Christmas. Christmas. Yeah, right. there yes. you go. <laughs> All right, welcome back to the Jill Bennett Show. John Jang, Raji Sohal is here. I guess that's what Christmas smells like. Now we know the answer. Yeah, Chestnuts. Chestnuts and pine trees. We mm. get a, Christmas, a real Christmas tree every year just because the scent is so wonderful in our house. I haven't had a Christmas tree in like five years. Oh, gosh. That's the yeah. difference between John, you and yes, I. Yes, it is, yeah. <laughs> uh, that being said, uh, glad that you can be with us. Our good friend Andy Barrar is here as well, technology and digital lifestyle expert online at handyandymedia.com. You can also hear him once a week on the show. Shift with Shane Hewitt. Now, Andy, uh, the last conversation we had, we were talking about how you can stay connected with family using technology if you can't have those in-person gatherings. The next portion, as based on the restrictions we heard yesterday, is how can we stay active and healthy and fit? Because I got to tell you, I'm not wearing it today because I forgot to put it on, but my smartwatch will remind me like every hour if I'm not moving, it'll just nag me and be like, hey, it's time to move. Like, just do something, you potato. So I figure, (laughs) Andy, there's probably other devices out there that'll encourage us to stay fit even if we can't go to a gym right now. Well, absolutely. And and I think you're onto something uh, wearing a smartwatch or or these other activity trackers like the Fitbits uh, of the world. Those things are great. And I've always had a love-hate relationship. And when they first came out, they had really bad battery life. And so you would have to charge them every night. But they've gotten really good. So some have up to five to seven days of battery life. And the great thing about these smartwatches and activity trackers is what you alluded to, Jean is that they make you cognizant of your activity levels. And this is really important because a lot of us are now working from home. So we get up, we sit at our computers all day, um, and so we don't necessarily move as much as we normally would. And these activity trackers are designed with features that if you've been sitting for a long period of time, you'll get a little vibration, a little nudge to be like, hey, you should get up and stretch. You've been sitting for about an hour and a half. And, and that's usually the, the type of break. About 90 minutes, you're going to want to at least get up and, and go for a walk for 10 or 15 minutes. And these gadgets, um, especially activity trackers, do a great job of that. The important thing to note, though, is don't pay too much attention to the actual numbers themselves because being the geek that I am, I wear multiple activity trackers all at the same time. And there is a lot of variance in, in what they produce. The important thing is the trends that they show um, to just to keep you active. And it's a great way to create competitions with your loved ones uh, to try to create and see who can take the most steps uh, each day. I love that, Andy. Well, I just love competition, basically, especially with my family members and loved ones. But, you know, the the watches are quite pricey. And even the Fitbits out of range for some people, has that market opened up a little bit? Are there other offerings there that are a bit more affordable? There are. And because they've been around for a couple of years now, you can get like last year's model for, for pretty cheap because um, they're always trying to make the newest and, oh, yeah, and greatest. Oh, yeah, that's a good tip. So, so the prices have gone down and it's just important to not get too, and this people always do this, not only with activity trackers, but with smart scales, because this is another thing that if you are trying to lose weight, um, you might want to get is a smart scale, something that I got. And it was interesting. I got it in January of 2020. And then we had the pandemic and I actually could see this graph where my weight went up at the early part of the pandemic. 
And it kind of made me aware that, oh, I, I need to do something. I need to like stay fit. And this is when the other lockdown, the first lockdown, when the gyms closed down. Um, so that actually kept me aware of, of, you know, watching my weight. And it's something that a lot of people would like because it syncs automatically to your smartphone. You can see it in graphical form not only by the days, but by the weeks. And the important thing is to look at the trend. So as long as you're going down, as long as you're slowly losing weight, you know, you just keep, keep up that kind of lifestyle. So between an activity tracker and a smart scale, those are two things that you can really keep you cognizant of your activity levels and just how much you're eating as well. Andy, I believe you're referring to the COVID-19 pounds, uh, but I see it more as a goal than something I should be avoiding. (laughs) I've really enjoyed this last year of uh, just relaxing into uh, cooking more elaborate meals, more elaborate baked goods for my kids and let's face it, mostly myself because someone's got to sample all that. So uh, (laughs) I've been enjoying going the other way with that. Now, what about uh, new fitness apps? Have we seen a rise in that uh, over the last year? Well, the, the one that I would definitely recommend everyone try um, is just go on to YouTube and look for at-home workouts because a lot of people, even if you are working at the gym, you're now going to have to transition back into the home. And there are a lot of great uh, YouTube channels that show you at-home workouts. I actually went down this huge rabbit hole on prison-style workouts, on the, the, the kind of workouts that prisoners <laughs> would, would use. I'm sorry, What? <laughs> Yes. And it's very impressive because some of these guys are in really good shape and they have nothing. They're literally in a room and they have really, really creative workouts. And so some of them who've obviously come out of prison have shared some of the workouts that prisoners do. And so we really, when I saw that, I, I, Raji, I was like, you know what? We have no excuse. You know, all of us can do a push up. We could do a body squat. Um, So, you know, we and the thing about working out is it's only like a month that we have this break. And so it's good time to give your body a break, change your workouts. If you if you never was running before, maybe go up for a run or a light walk, just change everything up and then you can go back to your old routine once the gyms open up. So, again, I'm trying to find the silver lining in everything. I appreciate Um, it because uh, when the gyms closed, when they announced that was happening again, Oh, I got to admit, I screamed into a pillow. I was not happy about that at all. I really need to work out with other people. I need that motivation. And so I enjoy going to like hot yoga classes and dance classes. I enjoy having an instructor. I like being part of a community, you know? And so if I'm home alone, I'm not going to just go ahead and do some squats on my own. I really need some guidance. I want someone uh, in an instructional video to give me that. So that's a good tip there for, for staying motivated. Yeah. And another another thing, um, and we learned this from last year, dumbbells. Everybody, if you had rusty dumbbells, you can make a, a lot of money if you if you were putting them up for sale. And a lot of tech companies have now created adjustable dumbbells. So these ones come and like you can actually uh, adjust the weights on them and they go oh. from five pounds to 55 pounds. And if anyone wants to see this, they can go to my website because I actually reviewed this, uh, handyandymedia.com. And, and like five to 55 pounds. And, and it comes with a corresponding app that shows you all the different workouts you can do with dumbbells. And, you know, as somebody who's been working out for years, I was really impressed at pretty much you can get a full body workout with just a pair of dumbbells. So we, again, really don't have any excuses. We have both the technology <laughs> products and prison workouts on YouTube oh, man. that can get us fit. During I, this, I, uh, I love that. that. That's my biggest takeaway from the show this afternoon. We, we can't top that anymore. Andy, thank you so much for doing this. Happy holidays, my man. Yeah, Happy holidays to you too. 
All right, welcome back to the Jill Bennett Show. Uh, it is John Jang and Raji Sohal filling in. Hope you're enjoying yourself a, a wonderful Wednesday afternoon so far. Just a reminder that it'll be Raji and I in for Jill as well tomorrow. And uh, musical chairs all throughout the CKW lineup. So over the next little while, different voices, but change could be a good thing, Raji. Change is a good thing. Yeah, I'm really excited about what we're talking about uh, next and in, and in the next couple of uh, segments here, John, mm-hmm. just because we're talking about how to remain hopeful this season. And after yesterday's news of the oh. new restrictions, I think we could all use a little bit of that. But I am a big fan of, and I know I'm going to get some pushback on this, but when something big happens, when something's being taken away from you, as a, a little, some of our, you know, things we wanted to do, our plans were taken yeah. away from us yeah. yesterday. I think it's totally healthy and good and normal to vent, yeah. get it out, complain as much as you need to, and then get over it and pull yourself up. And you need a bit of hope to do that. So I'm, I'm really curious to hear how our listeners um, are finding hope this season. And, you know, we all hear that we need to be grateful, which is an easy thing to do when you're, when you're happy and things are going easy. But how do you find gratitude mm-hmm. when you feel down, when you feel the chips are down? How about you? Well, that's the thing. In, in, in times of, I, I think chaos is a good word to maybe describe the mood of a lot of people right now. In times of chaos, you got to find something. You, you have to find, whether it's in yourself, whether it's an external force, something that'll give you a source of optimism, a sense of being, I don't know, required so that you can just feel good about the decisions you're making, about where you're going and about what you're doing uh, to sort of explain how British Columbians can remain hopeful uh, throughout the holiday season when it feels like times are tough. We are joined now by Bruce McDonald, president and CEO of Imagine Canada, a nonprofit. Bruce, good afternoon. Thank you for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me on. Now, when we talk about how important hope really is for individuals right now throughout the holiday season, is it possible to just even at all overstate that role that it plays in terms of committing not just our physical well-being, but our mental well-being as well? No, I don't think so. I mean, this is a season of renewal. This is a season of giving and hopefulness. And I think that it's natural for people to be looking as we head at the end of one year into another uh, for those signs of, uh, of positivity. Well, positivity, I think, is so so key right now because finding it, I think, might be the tougher part for people on a day-to-day basis, given the restrictions, given all the change that's happening to them over the past number of weeks. But when we're talking about creating hope and remaining hopeful, what are some of the easy ways that people can try and find these things right now, Bruce? Because I think when times are tough, we tend to forget how simple and, and easy it really can be. Well, you know, it's interesting. We, we did some polling across the country in, in conjunction with our colleagues at Mental Health Research Canada. You know, and we found that much of their sense of hopefulness was fueled by the ability to, to see family and friends this holiday season. And I realized that that might be curtailed a bit now. But we also saw things like giving and receiving gifts, connecting online. And what we were really pleased with was also to see that that about 66% of folks in BC who donate and volunteer indicate that this actually fuels their hope and optimism over the, the holiday. So it's not just a, an inward-looking sense, it's an outward-looking sense as well. Yeah, it's so interesting you mentioned that because I came across a poll recently that showed uh, a survey that showed people feel so much better in general when they give, when they give of their time or they help out in some way. What are you seeing in those ways? 
Well, I absolutely believe that, and, and this data actually supports that. We, we found that 75% of folks in British Columbia say that the hardships inflicted by the pandemic had given them a new, appreci- a new appreciation of the importance of generosity. You know, it, it's interesting. One of the things we've noted through the pandemic is that more and more Canadians have come to organizations for services and resources. One in two charities now reports an increase in demand for their services. What's been interesting in these findings is to see that people are expressing an appreciation of the need to support those services because their friends, family, or work colleagues have benefited from them. So if there's a silver lining in this pandemic cloud, I think there's been an understanding that we need to look out for each other. When we're talking about donating as well, it doesn't just always have to be money, right? Because I think what we've learned as well extensively over the past 20, 21 months is that a lot of people are facing financial burdens and maybe they aren't in the same position that they were uh, pre-pandemic. So if it's donating, maybe it's something like clothing. Maybe it's something like giving a little bit of time to shelters that could use extra manpower during these holiday seasons. Is that also what we're seeing here? For sure. And there's so many ways to contribute. It could be in-kind contributions, like you mentioned. It could be volunteering online. It can also be the the donation of knowledge or expertise. I mean, if you look at organizations who themselves are struggling to meet this increased demand with fewer resources, whether it's, it's knowledge about human resource practices or website construction or digital marketing, all of these are, are, um, instruments and tools that the sector needs to be able to provide those services and can be great sources and great ways for people to volunteer. Bruce, for people who are listening right now and they're still feeling down from the news yesterday of new restrictions or even just feeling down in general, what is your advice for the first step that they can take to feeling a little bit more hopeful? Well, you know, as I mentioned, our our data shows that this idea of thinking about others and, and friends and family and and people in your community has proven to be a, a source of fuel for joy and optimism. My my recommendation on the first step is to is to take is to sort of lean into that and say, are there people, are there organizations in our communities who are doing such great work for others that I could actually fuel my own sense of hope and hopefulness and joy by contributing to in one of a, a variety of ways. And, and the result is that it actually works well for everybody. Uh, what role does vaccination play in terms of providing hope? Because I remember when I got that first dose in me earlier in the year, Bruce, and I put that sticker on my chest, that was maybe the most optimistic feeling that I had had in a very, very long time. Now, obviously, times have changed. Uh, a few months have gone by, and, and maybe that shiny feeling has worn just a little bit. But I got to think that for individuals who have chosen to get the jab, that really does provide the, the big sense of hope and optimism that we can one day put the pandemic behind us. Well, absolutely. And again, the, the data bears it out. I mean, uh, those who receive the vaccine are feeling more hopeful. And as well, it's also relieving worries of their friends or family, um, you know, in, term, in relation to COVID-19. So I think there has been a, a sense of peace of mind, and I think it'll be in, important going forward. All right. Uh, Bruce McDonald, president and CEO of Imagine Canada, explaining how British Columbians like you and I can remain hopeful this holiday season. Bruce, thank you so much for giving us some time here today and happy holidays to you and your team and your family. Uh, really appreciate you doing this. Thanks very much. And same to you. All right. Welcome back to the Jill Bennett Show. Happy that you could be with us on a uh, 
Just making sure it's not snowing or raining yet. It's overcast on a Wednesday afternoon, but thank you for being here. John Jang with you, Raji Sohal as well. We are co-hosting and filling in today. Uh, coming up uh, in about uh, 20 minutes or 15 minutes time, we'll be speaking with the co-owner of a Pilates studio, adamant that this particular business should be exempt from the latest round of restrictions. And since we are going to be talking about exercise, we also figured we might as well talk about the connection between physical activity, exercising, uh, the brain, and just overall well-being throughout this pandemic, throughout COVID-19. So with that in mind, we now welcome our next guest, Dr. Eli Putterman, Associate Professor in the School of Kinesiology at UBC. Dr. Putterman, thank you for giving us some time here today. Oh, it's totally my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Of course. I imagine, though, given your body of work and what you uh, have studied extensively over the years, that yesterday's announcement uh, closing, once again, those gyms and fitness centers probably came as quite a, uh, quite a surprise and maybe a bit of a shock there as well. Well, I mean, from a pandemic perspective, it's not so much of a surprise. I think everyone's really concerned about this new strain and the increasing numbers. So I understand why the government would become as cautious or precautious and take out these massive precautions. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, so from like a, as a health psychologist, I see the importance of what is being done. Um, but I think that it's going to have a very hard impact on a lot of people's mental health um, and well-being. So, you know, it's, there's two sides to this, and so I'm not I'm not happy for the people who right. rely on the gym and who rely on going indoors into these spaces. I'm not happy for them. Fair, and Dr. Puterman, you know, um, I, I think it's it, it's. I'll go back to an old phrase that my friends and I kind of used to use whenever we tried to just pump each other up, which was to say, you got to look good, you got to feel good, you got to sound good. And it all goes hand in hand in hand. Now, forget the last part, but looking good and feeling good, that kind of goes hand in hand. And uh, looking good is, is not just being skin deep. It's about making sure your body is healthy. So explain to us, again, the connection between feeling good mentally and then wanting to, again, get the best out of your physical body as you can because there are clear connections the endorphins the dopamines all these things if you could yeah so that's a there are a lot of pieces to that question so i'll start off with you know the benefits of moving our body so we you know every body has a different shape every body has a different size but moving our bodies is definitely definitely very beneficial regardless of the size of our bodies. So um, it's important to uh, remember that. So a lot of people don't feel very comfortable when they're moving their bodies because of their size of their bodies. They don't like doing it around others, but there's still so much benefit that will happen internally within our brain, within our body. Like when we contract our muscles, we release this, uh, this compound called brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And that actually enters our brain and helps our brain think better and feel better. Um, so there, uh, you know, and you mentioned the endorphins, and there's also endocannabinoids, the internal cannabinoids or internal marijuana, pretty much that happens within our body and in our brain when we move our bodies, and that's what helps us stay so calm when we're working out and after we're working out. That's what makes us feel calm. So there's so much that is happening within our body, within our brains, that really leads to this feeling of more positive and also more calm. In, in, within our within our days. So, Doctor Putterman, we're not making it up that when we are working out, then that we just we feel better. No, you're no, you're not making it up at all. Especially when we choose things that we like. When we choose things that we like, 
then we feel better. If I tell you right now to do something that you do not like or tell you to do something much more intensely than you prefer to do it, you'll actually feel worse during it and not like it and probably not want to repeat it. Um, but if I tell you, like, go outside and do something that you like right now, that will completely make you feel better during it. And also it has a long lasting effect throughout the rest of the, your, your day. Yeah, Dr. Putterman, you studied an app, a specific app, and you looked at the connection between virtual workouts and mental health uh, with users that were using that app. What did your study actually entail and what did you find? Yeah, so we started this study at the beginning of the pandemic, um, I guess two years ago almost now, which is kind of frightening. Um, and we provided, you know, the app was called Down Dog. Uh, or the company is called Down Dog, and they have different components of the app. They have a high-intensity interval training app. They have a yoga app. They have a bar app, and they also have a mindfulness app. And we provided people free access to either the yoga one, the high-intensity interval training one, or to the combination of the two, or we had a control group. And we followed people for six weeks after we randomized them to these four different groups. And what we found is that regardless of the type of exercise that people did, that if they were in the exercise groups, they were more likely to decrease in their depression because a lot of people were feeling depressed and isolated at the beginning of the pandemic. They were more likely to decrease in their depression over that next two-month period. Um, you know, they, they had, especially the people who had higher scores in depression to start with at the beginning of the study, they really had a significant impact on their well-being by really reducing how much depressive symptoms that they were experiencing. Wow. What was, what was really important is that the people who got access to both the high-intensity interval training, the ones who all got access to yoga, that was uh, they had the biggest impact. And one of the reasons they probably had the biggest impact is that they stuck with it the most. They had they adhered, and there's so much research saying that if you're given variety, you're more likely to stick it, stick to exercise. Okay, so how much has the medical community been using this uh, information from your research? Uh, are they prescribing less meds to people who are depressed and telling them to get out and exercise instead? So there is now uh, a consort or a group of people in Canada and Canada has released, the Canadian Medical Association has stated that for mild to moderate depression, a first line of attack for depression uh, should not be medication, but should be physical activity, psychological support, and physical activity is now being pushed. Whether medical professionals are actually pushing it. I'm not really sure that that is completely the case. I also think that medical professionals and other healthcare professionals aren't provided the tools in order to know how to support someone. It's, there's a difference between saying to someone, oh, by the way, the Canada, you know, government, Canadian government, the Canadian Public Health of Canada um, tells you to work out 150 minutes per week. What does that mean to people, right? And then what does it mean to get to 150 minutes per week? So I think that we're, we're not taught, or a lot of people aren't taught in the healthcare profession, the tools to get people from zero to 150 at some point in their lives to turn it into a habit. And I think that's one of the biggest ways we have to think about it. It's not like tomorrow you have to do 150 minutes. It's like, how do we slowly nudge people from mm. zero to 150? Uh, Dr. Putterman, uh, Putterman, we're just up against the clock here, but final question for you. Is, is this kind of brain activity or chemical release that comes from exercise unique to that alone? Like, for example, I can't get that same kind of uh, mental joy or chemical joy from finishing a puzzle, for example. Uh, you, you'll still get the relief. It's a question of how long that relief lasts for. Mm -hmm. um, I, when you work out the 
the relief that you get, the release in negative emotions, the increase in positive emotions, that calmness will just last longer than finishing a puzzle. I think I, I haven't done a study comparing the two and its long-term effects, um, but they each have benefits. Puzzles help you maybe cognitive flexibly, like having more flexibility in your cognitions and your thought processes. It might help you come up with like better solutions, but exercise is also shown to have great impact on cognitive health. So, um, it's a good study. It's a good, a good idea. <laughs> All right. Dr. Putterman, thank you so much for giving us some time here today. Happy holidays. Happy holidays to you too. Thank you. Ah, life finds a way. <laughs> That's really the takeaway uh, from today's program. It's the Joel Bennett Show, John Jang, uh, Raji Sohal here. And we're not playing the Jurassic Park theme song just because. Uh, it's certainly not on any holiday music album that I know of or any playlist like that. But let me just read a headline and just get your reaction to the headline first, Raji. It reads, perfectly preserved, extremely rare dinosaur embryo in egg found in China. Yeah, well, my first thought is, okay, dinosaur embryo has been found inside a fossilized egg. What does that even mean? (laughs) What on earth? And thank goodness for a story like this in the news cycle we've been having lately. Absolutely. We need a little bit of non-COVID things to get really excited about, and I think this would absolutely qualify. So to break down and explain if Jurassic Park is a real thing or could potentially be a real thing in our lifetime, we are now joined by Derek Larson, Paleontology Collections Manager at the Royal BC Museum. Uh, Derek, thank you so much for giving us some time here today. Uh, Thank you very much for having me. It's great to be here. First question right off the top for you, sir. Can this discovery mean Jurassic Park the real thing in our lifetime? <laughs> well, that's a great question. I'm sure that's on a lot of uh, people's minds. Uh, certainly there was a lot of discussion I saw on uh, social media over the last couple of days. Uh, the short answer is no. Uh, this is an exceptionally preserved fossil, um, and uh, it's one of the rare instances where you actually have the bones of the animal uh, basically in life position, you know, with the, with the skull attached to the neck, attached to the rest of the body, and all the way down. Um, and, and all of those bones are in position, uh, but there's no uh, uh cellular tissue left uh, that contains any DNA. The DNA, the building blocks of life that you need in order to uh, have your genetic makeup to to actually uh, clone an animal, which is what they did in Jurassic Park, um, is not preserved. However, we do have for one of the few instances of a complete skeleton in life position in a fossilized dinosaur egg. Derek, how rare of a finding was this? Uh, they're they're quite rare. Uh, this particular fossil uh, comes from uh, the uh, Jiangxi province in China, in southeastern China. There are a number of fossilized dinosaur eggs that have been found all over the world. Um, most of them do not have any skeletons inside. Uh, during the course of an egg's development, you sort of go from being entar- entirely made of cartilage and not very easy to fossilize to your bones just starting to form. And uh, generally, you know, you might find uh, some bones inside an egg, uh, but they're almost never sort of in this life position with the, with the skeleton completely laid out. So much is being made, Derek, of the position of the skeleton inside of the fossil. Why is that? 
Yeah, so the really neat thing about being able to see the position of the embryo of this uh, fossil dinosaur inside the egg is because these this egg is related to birds, birds, of course, being the modern uh, descendants of dinosaurs, but is well outside of what we think of as as birds today. Uh, this was a, a bipedal land-living dinosaur. And uh, what it shows is that the position in the egg uh, in this group was very similar to what you have in birds. It was sort of tucked in with its leg, uh, or, or, sorry, with its uh, head um, wrapped around the front of its body and sort of tucked in between its legs and its feet, uh, which is what you see in modern birds. So this is uh, in, in indicating that uh, that development and, and being inside an egg in that way um, uh, dates not just from birds itself, but in well into the dinosaur family tree historically. Ideally speaking, uh, Derek, this discovery seems very, very big, but if you could choose then what this leads to, what would that be? Because so many of us, you know, we, we get excited about dinosaurs when we're younger, but by the time we're adults, we don't think of them a whole ton until we go to the Royal BC Museum, of course. But in your case, as somebody who's been following this so extensively throughout your career, what do you hope this will eventually lead to? Well, uh, the, the study of dinosaurs is, is very interesting, and it tells us sort of how the world has changed uh, over millions of years. You really don't have that perspective over human lifetimes. You know, you see things change, but, you know, many things stay the same. So having this perspective and seeing literally how uh, animals such as dinosaurs and birds have evolved over millions of years, you think is really informative or our understanding of how those processes work on very large timescales. So being able to see the evolution of embryo development in eggs, which is a pretty key feature for birds, right? You think of eggs when you think of birds oftentimes. So it's a pretty key feature of the group. Um, and learning how that evolved and, uh, you know, perhaps the direction of where that evolution is going, I think, is the key uh, discoveries that are coming next in the future. You know, I've been to uh, Drumheller in Alberta, of course. I've been to that museum as well. Mm -hmm. And I know that region of Canada is also very famous for a lot of discoveries related to dinosaurs, fossils, things of that nature. Have we seen, mm -hmm. has Canada had a, a similar kind of uh, discovery where an embryo or an egg of this magnitude has been discovered here? So we do have fossilized eggs and uh, embryos known from Canada um, uh, and from a few different groups of dinosaurs. We have things from uh, uh, duckbill dinosaurs uh, as well as some meat-eating dinosaurs, sort of relatives of birds, uh, not, not uh, 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 oviraptorid, which is the quote-unquote egg thief dinosaur, which is this current discovery in China. So we do have eggs here, and we do have some embryonic bone, uh, but nothing that's been this complete. This is probably one of the most complete, if not the most complete embryo that's been found ever. Fair enough. So uh, just to sort of bring people up to speed who might just be joining us now, a perfectly preserved dinosaur embryo uh, found in China. Very important discovery for a lot of different reasons. Derek, you've already shot down the possibility of this turning into Jurassic Park because the DNA does does not exist. It's just bones. But Derek, mm -hmm. the next big question, and maybe the biggest of them all, do we at least have a better understanding now? What came first, chicken or the egg? Like, does this at least figure that one out? Uh, yes, we can def 
definitively say that uh, eggs came before uh, chickens. Uh, chickens came much later because, of course, we've got dinosaurs and, of course, all of the other reptiles that evolved before chickens were uh, even around millions of years in advance. So definitely uh, egg before chicken. All right. That's yeah. good to know. That's a big discovery. So fingers still crossed that we're going to find a dinosaur DNA found in a mosquito trapped in amber. That's the big goal here. And then hopefully those Jurassic Park dreams can come true. But Derek, uh, really appreciate you giving us some time. Happy holidays to you and yours. Thank you. You as well.